welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Chris. When's the last time you took a run? Oh, wow. Actually, two weeks ago. Oh, not bad. Are you still sore? I yeah I am actually was I it? think I I think my fastest mile was like 11 minutes per mile oh my god that's not running actually um, yeah I think some walkers were giving me a good challenge <laughs> what about swimmers in a pond next to the path you were running on were they passing you yeah no I avoided that <laughs> okay. it's it brings up the interesting topic of eccentric contractions of the muscles and so well let's not get into that that's another episode of fast talk what we're here today to talk about is health iq a very unique life insurance company that specializes in healthy active people like cyclists runners and triathletes they're able to give us favorable quotes on life insurance and they have a special website just for fast talk listeners www.healthiq.com slash fast talk Head over there, submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava account, your MapMyRun account, any other way you can prove that you are an active, healthy individual, and they'll give you a better quote on life insurance. All at Health IQ. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Fast Talk. I am Chris Case, joined today with Trevor Connor, as always. I won't even call you lovely today because I've been doing that too much. <laughs> You've been doing that. So then you switched to beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> well, I won't even repeat what you wanted me to what it wanted you to say about you. But um, so we're sitting here today at Vela News World Headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. First of all, I've got a few announcements. I want to thank you all for the response from the Nutrition Podcast, number episode number 37. We've had an unbelievable uh, response to that, uh, kind of overwhelming. It's um, been huge. Um, and I apologize, I haven't gotten back to most of you. We're in the middle of a recording session, which means we're, we're usually going 9 until 11. So... Phone call for Trevor Connor. Somebody wants some nutrition advice. That's actually one of my athletes. After I told him the one time I won't be free is right now. <laughs> um, but so thank you again. Please uh, be a little patient. Trevor will be getting back to many of you in emails. Um, we're going, we got such a great response. We're going to do another um, podcast sort of devoted to your questions about nutrition. Just bear with us. Um, as you probably know, if you're a fan of Fast Talk, we like to do our research. Um, we don't like to answer things totally off the cuff. So Trevor has a lot of research to do before he answers some of those questions that you you guys have. And they're all great questions, so we want to give great responses. And that being said, let's now spend an hour with me answering questions <laughs> right after I read Right them. off the cuff. Right off the cuff. Which always terrifies me, but I hope I give at least an okay answer. Yeah. And uh, any that we can't answer well here... Uh, as Chris was saying, we're going to start actually doing special episodes of, of listener questions because we've been getting so many emails. Um, we, we want to research those answers and then actually give all of you the answer. Uh, two more things before we get into your questions. Uh, please, if you do like what you hear from us at Fast Talk, go on to iTunes or the other places where you find your podcasts and rank us and give us good reviews. And um, that helps pe other people find Fast Talk in searches. The more reviews and positive reviews that we get, the, the higher our results come up in searches. And of course, please refer us to all of your friends out there who might benefit from listening to Fast Talk because we want to grow the audience and uh we are and we want to grow it more so yeah any other announcements trevor before we get in i think you covered it all so shall we start with our our first uh question yeah, absolutely oh so yeah the i guess the one other thing we just want to say we do really appreciate all the questions and please email them to us um it, it's web letters at uh, competitorgroup.com yes that's the email address yes. Uh, only thing that we will ask is try to keep the questions a little bit specific. If you send me an email saying, 
uh, you know, I think I got one that was something on the lines of my FTP isn't where I, I'd like it to be. What should I do for the next 12 weeks? <laughs> um, that's a hard question to answer. You know, with my own athletes, I spend a month um, getting to know them, finding out a lot about them before I give them any sort of training plan. So even just putting aside getting to know you so I can answer that question, that's a huge question to answer. Um, same thing, please don't send an email saying, what should I eat for the next year? Um, the more specific you can be with the right. questions, the better an answer that we can give you. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent okay. advice. All right. Did you have one that you wanted to answer from uh, from your notes, or do you want to take one from? Uh, do we have any? We, we so have we, some. Yeah, we have some. Uh, I'll leave that up to you, Chris. This is you. All right. Well, let's uh, take one from a listener out there. Craig Dalton asks, "How do you feel about liquid calories? Gravel riding is making it harder to eat." I think liquid calories are great. When you are training or racing, it's all about getting in sufficient calories to keep yourself fueled. Um, however you can do that, um, do it. So again, so we'll, I, we had a question that we might get to a little bit later where in my email reply to the, the listener, I said, you're always trying to balance performance, training, and health. Um, and sometimes one of those is going to be more important than the other. So if you're out on gravel roads and you can't be reaching in your pocket and opening up packages of food, try to get it through um, through bottles. I do know a lot of people who say they just can't drink if there's any sort of sugar in the drink. So they have to do water and they have to rely on food. So it's getting to know yourself a little bit as well. Um, but if you can tolerate it, um, yeah, do the drinks. Uh, in racing, I personally have a hard time eating. Um, so I actually do a very concentrated drink mix during races because that doesn't bother me at all. And it's a way for me to get calories down. So that's how I do it. Great. You have anything to add to that? I mean, somebody who rides a lot of gravel. Well, you know, um, I am not, it's one of those things where it's not something that jives really well with my stomach. I, I end up eating a lot of I don't I don't take in a lot of calories through uh, uh, my bottles. Um, I still have to rely on food, so I don't know that I would be able to give um, any particular advice about the the liquid calorie diet. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're getting a bunch of questions now. Yeah. Um, next one from uh, Sam Allison. As an endurance track cyclist, I've been putting in some decent lifting over the winter. I have a B priority race coming up. How long prior to it would you recommend stopping lifting? So there's one where you're going to get uh, a lot of different opinions. Um, I am one of those believers of lift all year round, which is what I do. Um, and when I'm trying to peak for a race, uh, weightlifting is, is a key part of that. Um, I definitely try to keep my athletes lifting all year round. And you can take that pretty close to the event. Um, so I personally will stop lifting about a week before the target event. But last week I was in meeting with Jess, who, if you remember, she was our guest for the, the weightlifting podcast a couple episodes ago. Uh, she's helping with one of my athletes. She's building a, a weightlifting plan for him. And we were talking about his target event and I was pushing for let's stop weightlifting a week beforehand. And she was saying, no, I want to give him actually lightweights the week of and wanted to have his last session be about two, three days before the race. Um, and she feels pretty strongly about that, that that's going to keep him strong. So a lot of different opinions. There's going to be other coaches that are going to tell you once the season starts, you shouldn't be in the weight room at all. Um, my recommendation is do the, the really heavy lifting in the winter. Uh, you can do a lighter, more what I call power routine, which is lighter weights lift explosively. I think during the season and body weight stuff during the season, and you can take that, in my opinion, up to pretty close to the event. Great. Uh, we have some more nutrition questions coming in. If okay. You'd like. <laughs> um, from Alex Martins. Hi, guys. On the theme of sugars, I know sugars are not good, but is there one that is less bad if I need to use it? I know there, you have plenty to say about this. So I guess my question is, are we talking about when you're riding or off the bike? Which I'm not sure it, it yeah, says. Yeah, it's not specified. It's not specified. So really, I guess my immediate thought on this is to remember 
um, there are only a few types of sugar. And when you're talking about what we eat, um, the, the primary sugars that we eat are glucose and fructose um, and then probably lactose. Um, so when you're talking, but most of the time what we're talking about, uh, which I'm not going to say that, but when we're talking about glucose, when you hear about complex carbohydrates and simple carbohydrates, we break all of those down to the, those basic sugars, down to glucose. Um, a complex carbohydrate is just multiple, multiple chains of glucose uh, bound together, or sometimes it's a combination of glucose and fructose. So ultimately what gets into your system are those, those simple sugars. You just want a, a slow trickle as opposed to a big hit uh, when you're off the bike. Um, in terms of between the different sugars, most adults lose their ability to break down lactose. Um, uh, so there, there's a small percent of it, percentage of people who have what's called uh, adult lactase persistence, where you maintain the enzymes. That's a bit of a different conversation that we'll actually address when we talk about milk soon. Um, in terms of fructose and glucose, um, we do manage glucose better. We have more transporters for it, so we can take in more uh, within an hour. It goes into uh, right into our bloodstream. Well, fructose actually is, is shunted to the liver. Um, and the important thing to remember about fructose is it enters, so the glycolysis that breaks down sugars, um, it enters that process right below an enzyme called phosphofructose kinase, which I can't believe I pronounced correctly, <laughs> which is the rate limiting enzyme in the breakdown of sugars. So that's a complex way of saying when you take in fructose, you are going to use it whether you need it or not. So if you're getting a big hit of fructose in your liver, it's all going to get processed, and then your liver is going to say, what do I do with this? So one of the solutions is to try to store it. Another solution is convert it to lactate and then pump that lactate into the blood and hope other tissues can use it. Um, they are seen now in children who are eating a lot of this high fructose sugar, you're actually seeing fatty liver disease because all this fructose is getting used and then the liver's going, what do I do with this? Well, it tries to convert it to fat and then that fat gets stored in the liver and you end up with the disease that you used to only see in older alcoholics. So avoid too much fructose, especially off the bike. On the bike, um, I would say kind of a four-to-one ratio. Alex chimed in. He said he was specifically talking, talking about, about off, off the, the bike. bike. Yeah. So off the bike, um, really focus on the complex carbo uh, carbohydrates as opposed to simple sugars. In terms of simple sugars, there really isn't a healthy one. They're all going to spike insulin. Um, they're all going to have big impacts on your blood sugar that, that you don't want to have. So the complex carbohydrates get broken down slowly, um, gives that slow trickle to your body that's much more manageable. So after a really complex answer, there's the, the simple answer. Here's a follow-up question that we got via Twitter from Chris Dudko, I believe mm -hmm. you pronounce it. And, and hopefully this doesn't take us down another rabbit hole. If our bodies ultimately want glucose during exercise, why do most sports nutrition products force our bodies to go the extra step to convert fructose, sucrose into glucose? Why not just feed us glucose and skip the hassle? Um, there's a bunch of different philosophies. You know, I, I, I don't follow all the sports nutrition products, but I've read, I've gone to their websites and read about some of them. Um, so some of them are big on, if we just give you simple glucose, you're going to get this giant hit, um, and your body's not going to know what to do with it. Um, and it's going to be processed very rapidly where you want to be able to take in some sugar and have your body process it a little slower so you can use it throughout the event. Um, that's a thought. So if you're having sucrose or, or one of those slightly more complex carbohydrates, you're going to get a steadier uh, flow of glucose over a longer period of time. Um, certainly in terms of fructose and glucose, uh, when you are exercising, it is good to have the mix because glucose and fructose use different transporters. So everybody's a little bit different, but I'm just going to give a... a a ballpark. Um, you can transport about 60 to 80 grams, I believe it is, of, of glucose per hour. 
your, your, your system can transport about 20, 25 grams of fructose per hour. So the idea is if you have that kind of four to one ratio or three to one ratio, um, well, sorry, if you only had, if you only, um, consume glucose, you could only take in 80 grams of sugar per hour. If you take in glucose with a little bit of fructose, you might be able to get yourself up to 100, 105 grams per hour, and you're getting a little more sugar that your body can use. So that's the idea behind uh, having both sugars. Um, and like I said, the idea behind something like sucrose is it has to be broken down, so you're just going to get that that longer, steadier flow is the idea. I'm not sure I'd buy that, but that's that's what the, the sports drinks are saying. I'm much more the just get something with some simple glucose and a little bit of fructose and let your body figure it out. Great. Was there any other question that we had gotten that you've done a little bit of research on that would be sort of appropriate right now to bring into this conversation? Do we want to take on oatmeal? Yeah, let's talk about oatmeal. This is, this is a big one, and I might make this more confusing by the end of this than, uh, than answer questions. So... Right after the nutrition episode, four or five emails of, but what about my oatmeal? Um, and I sense a little bit of fear in some of those emails. Um, literally, one of them was, where would oatmeal as a pre-ride breakfast food fall in? Thank you. Uh, so the last, that nutrition episode, we talked about my bias, which is more on the paleo diet side. Um, and in the paleo diet, no, you shouldn't be eating these grains, um, including oatmeal. Uh, that being said, I did spend a fair amount of time looking into oatmeal and the different sides of it, because I certainly haven't researched that as much as I've researched uh, wheat. Um, I will say of all the grain products, the one that I would recommend uh, is rice, because it doesn't have the lectins and saponins that so many other grains have. Um, it's still suffers from the issue of not being very nutrient dense, especially if you're eating white rice, but it doesn't have a lot of the, the negative sides. So getting to wheat or or to oatmeal, um, and one of the other questions did point out, well, aren't all the pro teams eating oatmeal? Um, interestingly, I had a chance to see the, uh, menu that was put together. This is about 2010, 2011. Uh, for the garment team. Um, and you'd be surprised they, they didn't have a lot of these pasta parties on their, their meal plan. They didn't have big bowls of oatmeal for breakfast. Actually, what they had was, you know, it wasn't quite the, the paleo diet, but it wasn't too far off. Um, at Tobago this year, I rode with a European team that's, a, I forget which pro tour team it is, but they, they are the feeder squad to, um, a pro tour team. They had a good budget, so we had a, a chef for the entire race. And most of our meals were not, again, pasta and all the, those sorts of foods. It was, we were eating um, lots of meat. They had rice. Um, and again, breakfast was kind of meat, eggs, and, and, and maybe some rice, not the huge bowls of oatmeal and cereal. Um, so going into the, the pros and cons of oatmeal, there are a lot of pros to it. There's no gluten in it, um, which is one of the, the nastier things in wheat. Um, that being said, it still has lectins and saponins that can have negative effects on you. Uh, it's certainly something that's been recommended by diabetics. Um, it seems to be a little bit better for people with diabetes. Um, and I'm really simplifying a lot of this because I'm already going to go probably 10 minutes on this answer. <laughs> Um, I, I, I want to chime in and also say, and correct me if you, or debate with me if you want, but you're not saying don't ever eat oatmeal. You're never going to say that. I think, yeah. you know, when you say there are nasty things in it, nasty is a relative term. Yeah. So, I mean, I've gotten asked that question a bunch of times of, is this good for you? Is this bad for you? Um, I don't like with foods to, to make it that black and white. I always say it's, it's a continuum. Um, where you have, uh, so, you know, I don't know if you can see this, Whoa. but ah, <laughs> I, I've seen this in reverse. There we go. So over here you have things that are really, really healthy for you. So for example, kale, um, good piece of fish over here, you have things that are really bad for you. I'm going to lump things like French fries or up in Canada, we have this thing called poutine. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> I think most people in the world would agree. Probably kill you if you had too much of it. So yes. you, you have things that are on either end of that continuum, but it is a continuum. So it's not foods are either here or over here. Um, and so whenever people ask me about food, I'm going to say it's, it's somewhere in that continuum. Um, and, you know, oatmeal, you know, I'm still as a paleo person going to say it's, it's, um, on the not great for you side of the continuum, but I'm not going to put it down where I was describing wheat. Um, and there does seem to be some benefits. So like there's a fair amount of research saying there, there might be some heart health benefits to it and some anti-cancer. Interestingly, most of the research, uh, when I, when I look for health benefits, we're using it topically to, to help with dermatitis. Um, and there's actually a lot of research on that. I'm not sure eating it will help. And I also found an interesting study that showed that it might have some beneficial effects on the microflora. So um, there's certainly some positives to it. Going into the negatives, like I said, it does have lectins and saponins, which can, can affect your, your gut. Um, and I did do a fair amount of hunting for research on intestinal permeability in oatmeal. And that was surprisingly mixed. I found studies that said, yeah, it's bad for intestinal permeability. I actually found others that said it helped improve intestinal, um, you know, the prevent intestinal permeability. And I think just to chime in again, that's one of the hardest parts about nutrition science is that it's the studies are right. there's conflicting evidence. There things are sometimes hard to repeat in in the lab, etc. Nutrition is a new science and. It is not a resolved science. So, and that's one of the things that can, can get really confusing for people is you can find a study to say almost anything. So you really have to find a, a mass of studies and see what is, what is, what is the, the research dominantly saying. You also really have to dig into the methodology to find out because there's a lot of bad research out there uh, that makes claims that when you dig into it, you go, no, you really can't say that. But some of the things, again, continuing the, the negative effects, some of the definites about oatmeal are A, low nutrient density, which I talked about before. My big recommendation on that nutrition podcast was eat high nutrient density. Your body needs calories when you're trying to refuel, um, especially when you're doing a, a lot of heavy training. But your body also needs all those micronutrients to help um, keep it in balance, keep it healthy, do its repair work. So when you eat nutrient-poor foods, your body's going to say, well, that's great. You're replenishing the calories, but I still need more. I need my B vitamins. I need my magnesium. I need my iron, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you're not going to get a ton of that from, from oats. Oats, however, are pretty high in fiber. And, and certainly there, there's no debate that a high-fiber diet is healthy for you. Other issues with it is it's high glycemic index. So it's going to spike your insulin. It's going to spike your blood sugar. It's, so the, the glycemic index scale is uh, 0 to 100. Oatmeal is 70. Uh, that also means that you can eat a big bowl of oatmeal and it's going to make you a little bit more hungry. Um, so interestingly, one of you asked um, what to eat instead. Um, so I can tell you, I used to be that rider who had two bowls of oatmeal or a bowl of oatmeal and cereal in the morning, which added up to about eight, 900 calories. And I'd be hungry an hour or two later. Um, after I went on the paleo diet, my breakfast became eggs and fruit, um, which worked out to about 400 calories. And I could eat that and then go four or five hours um, without eating. And I could get on a bike right away and do a five hour ride and be fine. Um, so I actually it can't, again, I, I got a little obsessive with the research on the weekend and last <laughs> night. So I was looking into this and I'll just read you the titles. You, you can actually go into this research, but the titles describe it pretty well. So here's one saying consuming two eggs per day as compared to an oatmeal breakfast decreases plasma gre uh, ghrelin while maintaining the LDL HDL ratio. So it basically, you dig into it, they say, um, it leaves you more satiated than eating oatmeal. So exactly what I was just describing. You have a couple eggs and you can go much longer before you're going to be really hungry again. Um, so certainly if you're, you're trying to keep the weight down, having eggs instead of oatmeal for breakfast is good. And a lot of research now coming out in eggs is saying this whole belief that it's, it's going to cause heart disease and really affect your, your cholesterol negatively is, is not panning out. 
Um, this is one of my sins. I eat a lot of eggs. I have eggs every morning. I eat three of them. Uh, I recently had my cholesterol tested, and they had to retest it because my HDL was surprisingly high. My LDL was surprisingly low, which is what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, another study, and then we'll move on. One egg per day improves inf- um, inflammation when compared to an oatmeal-based breakfast without increasing other cardiometabolic risk, fa- risk factors in diabetes patients. And that was something I did forget to mention. I did find research saying that oatmeal can be somewhat inflammatory. Not as bad as a lot of other things, but there still is um, some inflammatory effects to oatmeal. Except when you put it on your skin, there's anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to make sure that this comment gets uh, tr- tr- uh, relayed to Trevor. John Argueta says, Coach Trevor, you look much younger than you sound. Kudos to your diet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm not sure what that says about my voice, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I fool it well. I am, I am not young. Um, but we, into, we don't have to go into that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm coming up on my 47th birthday and, uh, and not looking forward to that. <laughs> but still racing strong. Uh, trying. So I think with Chris Horner's retirement, I am now the oldest guy still racing NRCs. Very good. Um, yeah, and I used to joke with people. I, I've been doing this since you've been on training wheels. I, I discovered horrifyingly that I can now in a race say, I've been doing this since before you were around. Yeah. Well, there will come a time when you won't be saying that anymore when you're yep. hanging up the cleats. Last as long as I can. But thank you. I appreciate that compliment. <laughs> um, let's see. We've got a couple. Did you, we want to tackle um, another question that came in via Twitter the other day? Was the health difference between the inflammation caused by a hard workout versus the inflammation caused from a poor diet? Is that too big a topic to discuss in this live? Uh, live no, we'll give a we'll give a shorter answer. There is a longer answer, and I'll I'll try to cover that. Give that in my email um, and something. You know, when you're talking, again, when we're talking about diet, you know, even when we're talking about the micronutrients, you know, it seems like every month they're finding more and more micronutrients that we didn't know about. And this is why diet is so complex. So the thing I forgot to, there's one other study in oats when they were talking about the inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory effects. Here's a word you've you know, probably never even heard of, which I'm not even sure I'm going to pronounce this right, is avinath. Thermides. Horrible yeah, pronunciation. Thermides. Thank you. Uh, which is what they are studying in oats um, that seems to have the anti-inflammatory effect on your skin. Um, and they also talked a lot about the, the polyphenols in oats. We are discovering more and more and more of these little micronutrients and really don't know what they do or don't do. And this is part of what makes nutrition so complex. But going to this question, um, so again, it's the what's the health difference between the inflammation caused by a hard workout versus inflammation from poor diet? Um, and I'm glad this was asked because we really talked about anti when we were talking about diets in that episode, really focused on anti-inflammatory diets. Do remember that inflammation is actually when. In, in, the, in the right circumstances, it's an important process in your body that you need. So when you're sick, your body needs inflammation to fight off the virus. Um, interestingly, the way we evolved, your immune system does all the repair work um, after you've damaged your muscles in your system after a hard training ride. Um, so essentially, the same inflammatory or very similar inflammatory um, effect that you see when you're sick is used in your muscles to do the repair and it is necessary. So there's a ton of research coming out saying you really shouldn't after a hard workout be taking anti-inflammatory medication because that's actually going to hurt um, your body's ability to repair that damage. Um, and I actually read a very interesting study that showed that you get scarring in the muscle if you take the anti-inflammatories because it slows down the repair process so much. Um, so be careful about the anti-inflammatories after a hard workout. That's good inflammation. You don't want to stop that inflammation. It's only when inflammation is inappropriate, when you have inflammation that, that isn't solving something that it should be solving. That happens a lot with diet, where you just get this constant low-grade inflammation 
um, around your digestive system that can lead to chronic disease. Inflammation, when it's appropriate, there should be a stimuli. Your body upregulates the inflammation, it deals with it, and then it brings back down the inflammation. So you don't want it to be chronic. That's one of the issues. Um, there's also, so um, I think we mentioned this in a, a previous podcast, um, but there was a, a very interesting study that talked about this inappropriate inflammation. It was focused on sepsis um, and referred to, I want to use their terms, um, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, so SIRS, um, which is a, a fancy term for this you know, high-level inflammation that's throughout your body. And they talked a lot about sepsis, but this study actually talked about sepsis and chronic heavy exercise. And basically their point was normally what happens in the exercise response is the inflammation is localized to the muscles that were damaged or to the area that, that you were exercising. Um, but if you were constantly exercising, not getting good recovery and pushing yourself towards overtraining or burnout, that can also become inappropriate. It can become systemic and actually cause, they're saying, um, this systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which is similar to sepsis. Are the mechanisms the same? You know, very similar. You, you're constantly hearing, uh, when, you, when you're talking about inflammatory, um, so they're called cytokines in your immune system, you hear certain terms come up a lot, like IL-6, TNF-alpha, um, and actually we just talked, we just recorded an episode about... Um, the effects of, uh, uh, of endurance work on heart health. And we actually talked about TNF-alpha because that seems to be uh, important in the mechanism. Another really interesting thing to know about TNF-alpha is it regulates um, your body's ability to absorb sugars in the gut. Mm -hmm. So if you're eating a, a lot of high, this goes back to the, where we started, um, if you're eating a lot of simple sugars, you could be upregulating that TNF-alpha, which is highly inflammatory. Um, and certainly now the research is saying um, that it's sugar, not fat, that contributes to heart disease. Which we touched upon in that, in that episode. episode. Yes, yep. yes, yes. So it's all kind of, again, that's thinking out loud, but it's interesting. You, you get these things that seem to come full circle, and mm -hmm. I really want to take the time to, uh, to see what more research there is on that. Great. Send us more questions, people. Uh, we've got a few more here. We want uh, some more. And um, if anybody has something not to do with nutrition, that'd be good. <laughs> the do. So like I said, we, we got a ton of emails about nutrition, and Chris and I said, uh, we just need to do a special episode where we answer all these questions. So that will be coming up soon. Yeah. Here's one that has something to do with nutrition, but it's more about calories. Okay. Uh, Darren Petty asks, how do I determine how many calories a day I should be eating and what type of calorie deficit should I be running in order to lose excess body fat while maintaining, while maintaining my training goals? Are the online BMR calculators reasonably accurate? Uh, that... Depends on the calculator and it depends on how well you track it. So you can get yourself into some dangerous places. Um, the tool that I recommend to my athletes, if they really, really want to track their, uh, their calories is my fitness pal. Um, it can be pretty good and they do a lot of talking about portion sizes, um, which can help people because not a lot of people want to sit there with a scale and weigh everything that they eat. Uh, admittedly, in my early cycling career, I actually did that. I don't do it anymore. Um, you always have to be careful about counting calories because that can go bad places. People can get obsessive about it. They can get unhealthy about it. Um, I track what I eat, but I actually track what I eat more to see if I'm getting a good balance of the nutrients that I need um, versus counting the calories. I'm less interested in that. Um, my guidelines with my athletes is more never eat till you're full. Um, always be just a little bit hungry when you're trying to lose weight. Um, and that often does enough. That combined with eating a healthy, nutrient-dense diet, they tend to find the, the weight comes off pretty easily. Um, but if you are going to count the calories, my fitness pal would probably be my first recommendation for you. 
Um, I, I've, I've found a lot of people have had success with that. If that's am I, is that answering the question? We'll, we'll find out. Chime in if that was the an- answer to your question. Well, or please, yeah. Um, if I didn't answer it, uh, hit, hit us again with more. Very good. Um, couple other interesting questions here. Uh, Jamie Rudofsky, hopefully I got that right, asks, I'm a new type 2 diabetic. My nutritionist was not sure how I should be fueling on long rides. What are your thoughts? Prior to the diagnosis, I would eat Kind Bars and use Noon, which is a electrolyte uh, drink mix. For rides above 60 miles, I like adding in a sandwich, chips, and some salted cashews or peanuts. Um... Well, so when I gave that continuum of, of good to bad foods, chips are pretty far on, on the one side of that scale. Um, they, they aren't the healthiest foods, so I certainly just in, in general health recommend against eating those. Um, I am certainly not an expert on diabetes, so I'm always careful that because even the experts on diabetes yeah, this is a tough one. Um, will argue back and forth on what you should and shouldn't do. And I've seen in the diabetes community, um, they have recommended foods that all of a sudden later on they've completely about-faced on and said, that was a horrible idea. Um, the one thing that I, I will say about when you are exercising is remember, um, certainly when you're doing hard exercise, you're... you're body's insulin response um, shuts down a bit. So somebody asked me to clarify on this in an email, and I will say it's not that all insulin clears out. It's just if you consume sugar, you're not going to get a big spike in insulin. Your your blood levels are going to remain the same. Uh, The transporters in your cells that allow the cells to take in glucose are called GLUT4. So as a diabetic, you're probably very familiar with this. What insulin does is it binds to the cell and causes these glute transporters to, they normally stay inside the cell, to come to the surface of the cell so that sugar can be absorbed by the cell. Um, Exercise causes those glute 4 transporters to come to the surface of the cell independent of insulin. So that's why people who who work with diabetics are very, very big on exercise because since ins- you're, you're, you're insensitive to insulin or you're not producing insulin if you're type 1, um, you can't use insulin to get the GLUT4 transporters to the surface of the cell. Here's another mechanism. Um, so that's exercise is a great way to help you deal with blood sugar. Um, and, and this is what I'm, I'm trying to be really careful about. Talk to your doctor about this. But I think when you're exercising, especially when you're exercising hard, you are going to have a better ability to um, consume and take in those sugars. Um, outside of exercise, um, it, it's, it's just like any other diabetic. You have to be really careful um, about what you're consuming, about anything that, that's um, going to really spike your, your blood sugar. Um, and you know, you mentioned was it sandwiches? So we talked about chips, uh, cashews, peanuts. Cashews. I think it was. So I mean, those sorts of things. Um, they're they're lower glycemic index. I'm not sure what you're having in the sandwich. Certainly, white bread is very very uh, high uh, uh, on the glycemic index. So I would say for you, eating things that are lower on the glycemic index, certainly things that are lower glycemic load. Um, at all times are probably going to help you when you're exercising hard. Again, ask your doctor about this, but getting those simple sugars might be more manageable at those points of hard exercise. So it was a little around, all over the place. That's all right. That that's a, that's a tricky one, and I it's, yeah, it's it one where one. you don't want to give, if you're not super confident in the answer, it's, it's really tough to speak to um, the specifics of someone's medical condition and and what they should eat so so i would say take what i just said go to your doctor your diabetes doctor who is an expert on this run it by him or her and see what they have to say about that great uh two two questions about um compression where uh, i'll read them for you okay brian gristick says hey guys what are your pros, cons, or personal results on compression recovery using either compression clothing or using air pressure leg boots, podium legs, things like that? Um, is there a magic time span after workout that compression should be used? Um, Michael Alderman also asks sort of the same thing. Uh, how do they benefit recovery 
when should I be wearing them? When should I start? Can they have negative effects? Okay. So I have a love-hate relationship with compression clothing. Um, So I'm going to give you both sides of this. Uh, Back when I was working with Dr. Browning in his um, biomechanics lab, um, his lab was hired by one of the clothing companies to test some compression clothing. Uh, with the underlying implication of they wanted him to come back and say, this stuff is great, so that they could have a science, you know, quotes from a scientist when they tried to sell it. Uh, being the ethical guy that he was, uh, he basically went back and said, these are BS. Um, so what we found with the compression socks that we tested was, you always have to remember your, your epidermal layer is fairly thick and it's fairly, fairly spongy. Um, so most compression clothing is just going to compress that dermal layer, um, not get to your venous system and really not have any benefits. And, and the socks that he tested in his lab, that was the case. Um, now the medical grade compression clothing, which you often need somebody to help you put on. Yes. Proven benefits, both for people who have circulation issues and for recovery in cyclists. Um, there are benefits there. Uh, I did an article on uh, recovery modalities a couple years ago and, and spent a fair amount of time researching the different uh, types, especially because I really wanted to see where the, the research was at. And kind of cringe because every study I was reading said, was saying one of the few modalities that actually seems to have a benefit is compression clothing. However, again, you needed stuff that did more than just compress that dermal layer. Um, so it needed to be tight. It actually needed to be a little bit painful. Um, and a lot of these studies, they were showing big gains in recovery from exercise, but it wasn't they put it on for an hour after the exercise. This was people were wearing that compression clothing for 24 to 48 hours. Um, so if you truly, truly want to say, yes, I know this, I'm going to get gains from this, you need to wear it for a long time. You might even need to sleep in it. Um, and it needs to be tight. Um, it shouldn't be just that, oh, that's a, that's a, a little bit and tight and boy, that, that feels good. It should be, no, ow, that was painful and I need somebody to help me put this on. Um, at least that's what I've seen in the research. Um, but yes, there is a lot of, re- a lot in the new studies on recovery modalities are saying compression clothing is one of the ones that's going to help you. Um, same thing with those inflated, you know, giant boot things. Um, <laughs> Yes. I forget the name of them. There's, Sorry, there's that's a, not the scientific term. Many brands out there, yes. Um, I'm also going to say sitting on the ground and putting your legs up against the wall um, is going to help get that pool, that blood that's pooling in your feet back down into circulation. Um, that's kind of the poor man's solution to, to, to a lot of the same problems. Do you know much about the placebo effect, Trevor? I'm curious if you think that, you know, if you get into the routine of coming home from long rides, putting on the boots, doing some of these things that may not have the wonderful uh, benefits that the, the companies claim, but it has a placebo effect that helps you under, or believe that you're doing things to recover better, if that could actually have some benefit. Absolutely. And don't discount placebo effect in anything. Yeah. Um, people, as soon as they hear placebo effect, they go, oh, it's not doing anything for you. That's not what they actually mean by the placebo effect. Right. I actually read a study about, um, uh, it was back when I was doing a lot of research on, on inflammation. Um, and there was a study where they, they literally looked at the effects of the placebo effect on inflammation and showed um, people when they thought they were taking something that was supposed to help them, there was actually a positive change in this, in their cytokine profile, um, that it, it became slightly less inflammatory. So placebo effect can actually have very real effects on your body that sometimes can be beneficial. They've even shown it in brain surgery that the placebo effect, if they quote, pretend to do the surgery on your brain, going so far as to open your skull but not actually um, perform the full brain surgery will have a, can have a transformative effect on people. Yes. So the placebo effect can be extremely effective. The problem is the science behind how it actually functions, I think, is, is uh, quite 
unknown at this point in a lot of ways. Right. But, you know, this goes back and that's a, this is a whole different conversation. It is. Um, but the whole mental aspect to both performance and health, don't undervalue it. You know, I tend to be kind of pure scientist. So when somebody comes up to me and talks about incense and and candles, candles, and <laughs> meditation, and all that, you know, my immediate response is, "Oh God!" Um, but you know, even as a scientist, um, there there are real there's a real side to that, and it has been studied, and they do show there are benefits of this. There there's a whole side to the mind and what it can do for our body that we really don't understand well. So it often gets kind of tossed off as, oh, that's very new agey. Um, and it shouldn't be. So, very good. Oh, boy, salbutamol. No, we're not going to talk about salbutamol. <laughs> Sorry, right not at, touching at, that at the, one. At the moment, um, it's too... That's uh, just complex. But uh, uh, from John Argueta, the man who complimented his way to... Uh, he, he, he's the one that said that you looked very young and... Okay, well, uh, yeah. yeah. He, he's charmed his way he's into charmed, He's charmed his way into getting his question read. Uh, Total liar, it, so... And it's, and it's a non-nutrition question, so here okay. we go. Um, I trained for two years with Power, Sweet Spot, and Trainer Road. My coach now wants me to train on PE, perceived exertion, and stick with heart rate zones. What's the best way to translate power to heart rate zones? Does that make sense? Yes. yes. Um, well, hopefully your coach is just going to come up with heart rate zones for you based on some form of testing. Um, and you don't need to do the translation. But this goes back to, so when we talked about power and heart rate, um, we talked about one being an internal measure and one being an external measure. So meaning heart rate showing what's going on with your body um, uh, and how hard your body's working. So if you're riding side by side with a friend um, and you go up a climb at 160 beats per minute and he goes up at a climb 170 beats per minute, that says nothing about who's going to win up that climb. Um, if you're the same weight and you're both going up that climb and one of you is going at 400 watts, the other one's going at 300 watts, that's an external measure. We know who's going to be the first one to the top of the climb. Um, however, you know, if one of you is doing 170 beats per minute, one of you is doing 150, we know, and you both have the same max, we know which one of you is working harder. Um, so one of the big challenges early on when they, they started tracking power was, how do we translate the two? Um, and what they landed on was threshold. Because you have a, a threshold heart rate, you have a threshold wattage, um, and they tend to match up with one another. So, and that's part of the reason the, most of the training zone systems now are heavily reliant on threshold, because you come up with zones that are a percent of threshold. We talked about that in the FTP episode, that it's more complex than that. Um, however, when you're talking about zones below threshold, it isn't really that much more complex than that. So you have your, your threshold. We had, we talked about your aerobic threshold. That tends to be about 80, 85% of your, your lactate threshold. And that's true for both heart rate and somewhat for power. Um, I find it's actually closer to 77 ish percent for power. Um, but so I'm being very long winded with my answer. Um, Basically, what you need to do to translate is take those couple markers. So your, your lactate threshold, I would also figure out where your, your aerobic threshold is in both heart rate and power. Um, and then you can come up with equivalent zones as percentages of those different markers. Um, above lactate threshold, heart rate will go a little higher up to your VO2 max. Um, beyond VO2 max, when you're talking about that anaerobic capacity, sprint capacity, Heart rate doesn't show it at all because you hit your max heart rate at your VO2 max. So looking at those zones, which you can differentiate with power, you can't differentiate with heart rate. So I was a little all over the place with that one. Did that did I get to the answer there? Let us know, John. Okay. And John, yeah, no, thank you for your question and, and thank you for your, your uh, buttering, buttering him up. Yes. <laughs> as a, totally untrue as it was. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, any others that um, you had uh, looked what else into? What we have here? We had a whole list. Yeah. 
No, I, I've got a, I've got a couple. I didn't know if there were any that you were particularly interested in. in I mean, if we have time, uh, but this one we can cover at another point. Is uh, somebody had a question about about training? But if there's more here, this so. was the uh, from Zimbo Bodoweens. Yes, yes. So Zimbo Bodoweens, um, and he asked. Uh, uh, I'll read sort of the setup and the question because uh, the context mm -hmm. helps here. This summer, I'm planning to participate in a Grand Fondo with 7,400 meters of climbing. That's a lot of climbing. Yes. Your guide on designing a training program seems to adhere to a polarized training distribution. Most of what I've been reading on training lately takes the same approach. However, during this Grand Fondo, I will not be competing against anyone but myself. There will be no sprints for the finish line or attacks to follow. If all goes well and I have the right gears, I will not exceed my FTP the whole day. Instead, if I'm not going descending, I will be spending all my pedaling time at around 85 to 90% of my FTP, so I suppose this is high tempo to sweet spot. In this scenario, does it make sense to spend more time training at this specific intensity at the expense of time above LT and below aerobic threshold? Or will adhering to the polarized approach increase my fitness across the board and therefore also in this tempo sweet spot zone? So I love this question because it gets into this whole idea that there are different approaches to coaching and to training. Um, and a couple of the questions that he asked, I don't think there is a definitive answer. So one of them is this question of polarized versus sweet spot. Another question is uh, specificity versus what I call systems. So I'll talk a little bit about both. So first, the polarizer is a sweet spot. Um, I've certainly made it clear that, that I um, am more on that polarized side in, in my coaching and my philosophy. However, we've had that debate both. I wrote an article on it and we had a, a podcast on it. And the more I've dug into it, the more I've, I've listened to the experts on both sides, the more confused I've gotten um, because I have seen both be highly, highly effective. Um, even when you talk about somebody like Steven Seiler, who's kind of the, the godfather of the polarized approach um, and really laid it you out. You mean the Jay-Z. Sorry, the Jay-Z, yes. <laughs> Inside joke, you'll, you'll understand you'll be, with that podcast. Right. That's coming um, up soon. So, and you totally killed my train of thought, sorry, but I'll sorry. get back to it. No, this is cool. Um, so Dr. Seiler really laid out the polarized approach and showed that your, your top endurance athletes, this is what they follow. But even there in the research, um, there are other people, proponents of the polarized approach who are coming out and saying, cycling's kind of different. It follows a little more of what we call, would call a pyramidal approach. Still bulk of the training in those lower, what would you call zone one, zone two ranges, um, still 70, 75% of your training there. But the polarized approach then says all of your other training is, is a, you know, threshold or above and you do nothing in between, nothing in that sweet spot realm. Well, what they're seeing with top cyclists is actually they're doing about 15% of their training in that sweet spot range and only 5 to 8% above threshold. Um, and that's actually a big debate right now in the polarized approach. Um, certainly with my athletes, I've been adding more sweet spot work. I, I kept saying, well, I, I'm really polarized myself. Um, but I noticed I got weaker when I moved to Toronto and I had to kind of ask that question. What's the difference between Toronto and Colorado? And I realized in Colorado, you're always going up climbs. And unless you want to fall over, quite often you're sitting in that sweet spot intensity. So I was naturally, when I lived here, doing some sweet spot work. So I now have intentionally given my athletes a little bit, of not a lot, but a little bit of sweet spot work. And it's, it's actually really seems to be helping. So that's one of those ones that, even though I'm, I'm very on board with the polarized approach, it's not black and white to me. Um, so I will still say, and I'll get to this, well, I'll get to my recommendations to you in a minute. I just want to give this background. The, the second one is a systems versus specificity. Um, do you want to do your training where you pick your target race and say, I'm going to emulate that race and that's how I'm going to train? So if it has a one-minute climb in it that's critical, I'm going to do a ton of one-minute climbs. And just do intervals on that. Um, if I'm going to be, as you, you said, if I'm going to be doing a, a big long race with a lot of sweet spot work, should I just be going out and doing a ton of sweet spot? That's one philosophy. Um, the other philosophy is the systems approach, which is 
anytime we are racing, we are relying on energy systems. Um, and so what you should be doing is figuring out the best training to really hit those energy systems and develop them as best as you can, make those energy systems as strong as possible. And then when you're in the race, let the energy systems figure out um, how to handle that race. I am, again, more on the systems approach of really develop those energy systems, basically make as big an engine as you can, then figure out how to use in the race. That being said, as you're getting closer to the race, I do think some specificity is very valuable. Um, But first develop the engine, first develop those energy systems. So getting back to your question about, yeah, you're going to be doing a race with a whole bunch of time at sweet spot. Um, The type of race you're describing is my strength. Um, Chris can tell you we've done a few of those races around here that have the epic climbing and they're 120 miles. um, And I think I've set the record on a couple of them. You put me at the end of a a big race with lots of one-minute attacks, and you're going to laugh at how poorly I do. Mm -hmm. You put me in a race with 5,000 meters of climbing, 120 miles, where you just have to go, you know, grind grind all day, day, and I'm in my element. And I still mostly train polarized. Um, The bulk of my long rides, I like to do them um, just below my aerobic threshold. So for me, my, my threshold heart rate's about 174, my aerobic threshold heart rate range. And when I do this long work, I do it by heart rate, not by power. Uh, to give you an idea of how low this is, it's 134 to 145 beats per minute, which I have a lot of people go, I can't believe you train at, at that low a heart rate. Um, and I'll even do a lot of longer rides that are more kind of 120, 125 beats per minute. Um, but I get my power up at that range and... I've spent a lot of years working on that. So even when I'm sitting at that 140-ish heart rate, um, I'm still putting out 260, 270 watts. But it took years of training that range to get that power up. Then when you go into these long events, I can actually spend a lot of time at that, that aerobic threshold where I'm not getting tired at all. And if I hit climbs, I can take it more up into that sweet spot um, and have those, those uh, resources to draw on. That being said, as I was pointing out before, living in Colorado because of the climbs, I was still by nature throwing in some sweet spot work. So my recommendation is still keep it mostly polarized. Um, do a lot of that aerobic threshold training that I was just talking about, which is just slightly uncomfortable. But especially as you're getting closer to the event, you can work in more of that sweet spot work. Hit those long climbs at more of a sweet spot intensity. Um, you, you know, I would still also get in some high-intensity work. It's going to hit, um, you know, they've shown low-intensity and high-intensity both hit that PGC-1-alpha pathway. Um, am I getting nerdy? <laughs> um, that helps all sides of, of uh, oxidative metabolism. Of, of, God, I am getting geeky. <laughs> it's, it, they, it helps... Improve your endurance. How's that? He's in your um, element. And it hits it through different, pa- uh, different paths. Um, and they can be additive. So even if you say, I'm never going to be doing a big one-minute effort, still going out and just doing a little bit of high-intensity work is going to help that, that, that lower endurance. Does that make sense? I'm trying absolutely. not to get No, it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think we have time for one more question. Do probably. we have one? Yes, we do. Okay. And it's a good one. Okay. It refers back to our uh, climbing science, new science of climbing um, podcast that we did based on the article that we did in the magazine where we did some time trials. We invited Sepp Kuss, a world tour rider, to join us. And we looked pretty deep into the science of climbing and we both loved it. So okay. this re- this question so, yes. refers back to that. My answer is simple. I was painfully slow. It was embarrassing. <laughs> was, was there anything else to the question? Yes, there is. Uh, Steve Herman asks, any thoughts on how you can identify what style of rider you are? We talk about the different styles in that article and in the piece. I'm refer- referencing the Science of Climbing episode where Tr- Trevor and Chris compared efforts on different types of climbs. For me, if I look at my power profi- profile on training peaks, it's fairly unicron- uniform across time increments. So how does someone go out there and find out what type of rider they are so they can apply some of the things, the conclusions we drew from those, from that uh, research? 
research? There are a lot of different ways you can do this. And I would almost say you need to use a bit of everything to, to slowly figure yourself out. You have to do a little bit of sleuthing. Uh, you mentioned you use Training Peaks. Um, I believe they have this in Training Peaks. They definitely have this in WKO, which is their their desktop software. There's something called your power duration curve, which is a, a curve that um, I see myself in, in mirror image here. <laughs> but it looks at all your your peak powers for every duration. So your one second best power, your two second, three second, all the way down to, to five hours or your longest ride. And the curve kind of goes like this. Um, so it ha initially starts very high, drops down. You see a leveling off until you, you get to what would be um, your, your threshold power, and then you see it slowly decline again. Um, the shape of that curve will tell you a lot about what style of rider you are. I am a time trial style rider, so I tend to have a very flat curve. Um, my, my short duration powers aren't very good. Um, and you see less of a decay, decay in my, my longer, more aerobic powers. Um, Sprinter, you can see this huge kind of five-second power and then a, a very rapid decline and a not great, you know, when you get out to that 20-minute, one-hour power, it's not going to be very good. Um, WKO and Training Peaks, they actually, and a lot of the other software as well, um, will now actually tell you your type based on the shape of that curve. So I on WKO look at all my athletes and I'll say one athlete is a sprinter, one's an all-arounder. It has never said anything for me except time trialer. Um, and again, that's type. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be winning time trials. It just means that's, that's kind of my affinity. That's one way you can find out. Um, other way are to do those tests on yourself. If you go and do that, that test we talked about where you initially do some five-second efforts, then take a short break, then do a five-minute effort then take about a 10, 12 minute break, then you do a, a uh, 20 minute effort, then take a 10-ish minute break, and then you do a one minute effort. So that's what um, Sufferfest is using, the very specifics of that. Neil, worked, uh, Neil Henderson worked out. Um, Dr. Coggin and, and Hunter Allen have a very similar test. But you can look at your what sort of power you're putting out in each, and that's going to tell you a lot. So again, if those Shorter durations, that, that five second and one minute are really good, and your longer durations are, aren't very good. Or if you find, God, I hated that, that 20 minute test, but that one minute test was kind of fun, that five minute test was kind of fun, that means you might be more on that climber or sprinter side, especially if you put out that great five minute power and like that more than some of the other efforts, you probably do have that bigger vo2 max side to draw on and have a bit more of that climber side to you for me i hate the five seconds um, i'm okay with the five minute i try to find out an excuse not to do the one minute effort <laughs> but when i get to that 20 minute effort i'm like all right let's let's go that should you know that right there tells you i'm a time traveler other things are just watch yourself in races watch yourself when you're training if you are going up a long climb um Chris can talk more to this, but he's going to want to vary his pace. Even when he's out training, I imagine you probably want to... Yeah, it's hard for me to go up a climb and stay seated. I want to vary the pace. I want to sort of... Obviously, I'm not throwing down attacks if I'm just going out for rides, but there's definite um, uh, times when I want to go a little harder, ease up, settle in, and repeat. Now, when I'm going up a climb with, with, with Chris, being that t more time trial style climber, I get really annoyed because I just, as soon as we hit the climb, I'm like, okay, lock it in at 300 watts or whatever wattage, and I'm just going to sit here. And suddenly we hit a steep part, and Chris goes ahead of me, and I'm like, why are you doing that? <laughs> why are you varying pace? That's no fun. Don't do that. So it comes out just in the, the natural way you want to go up the climb. So go try a few climbs. And if you're like me, you don't like to vary the pace, you're more that time trial style rider. If you're like, if you're one of those riders that, no, I want to, you know, I want to hit the hard, the steep parts hard, then I want to ease up. I, I don't like to sit at a steady tempo. You're more that pure climber type. Or you're just not a climber at all. You might be a sprinter flatlander and should be avoiding the climbs. But you'll know that if you're finishing 10 minutes behind everybody to the top. Very good. Okay. All right. Well, 
you've spent an hour with us. Um, we have to cut it there. We have to cut it short, or uh, not cut it short, but end there. Um, sorry we didn't get to everybody's questions, but like we said, we're going to start doing podcasts, um, recorded podcasts that uh, take on all of our listener questions when Trevor has a little bit more time to get some research done to, to give you a... a complete and thorough answer and please keep hitting us with your questions like we said we're going to start trying to do um, extra special episodes of, of answering your your questions right so we we love to get them and one last question we should answer is is this one oh yeah this facebook live uh that'll be once i hit the end broadcast it takes a little while but it'll it'll remain on the vela news facebook page and you can rewatch it you can share it um so it'll live there. Yeah. And we will also post it um, on our, our, our podcast feed. And if we can combine our horrible technical skills together and figure out how to turn it into a YouTube video, we will do that. But I would not hold your breath. <laughs> yeah. Not um, a lot of technical skills. <laughs> yeah. So we will take all the audio and put it up as a episode of Fast Talk where you get it, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, all of those. So you'll find it there. One other thing I will mention we are going to start a Fast Talk-specific channel. So please go over there and subscribe and tell everybody else that um, is a Fast Talk listener to go over there and subscribe because we don't want them to miss when a new episode launches. Just a logistical thing that we have to work out on our end. So just know that that transition is taking place. We'll post in both places for a while. Um, so that hopefully we catch everybody and people aren't missing out. We'll make this announcement again and again. But uh, we'll do that soon. And so please go over and subscribe there. So from uh, Boulder, Colorado, thank you again. I'm Chris Case. Thanks, guys. We always Trevor love, Connor. Love talking with you. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.